Welcome to CSU Stories, the podcast where we tell the stories of the unique work of people in regional New South Wales and beyond. From Hollywood careers to amphibian specialists, we talk with CSU staff, students, alumni and members of our communities to share how our regions are shaping Australia and the world. Today, I am joined by Dr. Emma Colvin and Associate Professor Kath McFarlane from the Charles Sturt University Centre for Law and Justice. Both Emma and Kath have been involved in research examining the criminalisation of children who go missing within the out-of-home care residential environment. Today, we will be discussing insights to the research and their findings. Emma, Kath, welcome. And first of all, congratulations on being involved in this research. This has been so important and recognised on a state, national and international level. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for having us. Emma, can you tell me a little bit about the research? Who and what was involved to collect the findings? Well, we initially started this research a few years ago um, just with some internal funding from the university with our colleagues, Associate Professor Alison Gerard and Dr Andrew McGrath from Psychology. And our initial study, we talked to uh, people with frontline justice professionals, so for example, police and, and um, out-of-home care workers. And we really wanted to understand a bit more about what happens with the link between uh, kids in out-of-home care and the criminal justice system. So what we do know is that children in out-of-home care, those are kids who have been removed from their family of origin for a variety of reasons. They may be staying with other family members. They may be staying in what's called foster care, so with another family they're not related to. Or they may be in what's called residential care, which is when they live in sort of a group home sort of environment with um, paid carers, usually managed within the NGO sector or through case management with with family and community services. What we do know, prior research had shown that there is an overrepresentation of kids in out-of-home care in the criminal justice system. And we wanted to explore more about what happens when they're actually in out-of-home care. There's sort of, I guess, three bodies of research or three types of research that are done in this area. One is that research that looks at what happens to kids before they go into care. We were looking at what happens to kids in care and the actual impact of the residential care environment on offending and responses from the criminal justice system. And then, of course, there's what happens when kids leave care. So that was sort of our initial project looking at that. We were lucky enough once we got that pilot study off the ground, Kath joined us. um, She was working in in the public sector and joined us um, back at CSU. And we were um, fortunate enough to get some external funding from the Criminology Research Council through the Australian Institute of Criminology. And that took our study to the next level where we had access to the children's courts. Mm -hmm. We were observing cases in the children's courts We are looking at files, like the children's files, and we were also speaking to magistrates and having sort of that 360 view of what goes on in, in when care kids come before the courts. Part of this research too, I was reading around nearly 50 professional welfare workers were interviewed. Can we get a bit of an idea, Kath, of what kind of occupations we're talking about here? We spoke to Family and Community Services, the state government agency that uh, is responsible for child protection in New South Wales. So we spoke to policymakers from 
from that department. We also spoke to non-government agencies who have the contracts to provide care to children in residential facilities throughout the state. So we spoke to uh, caseworkers actually responsible for the day-to-day looking after of the children and to their managers. We also spoke, importantly, to police uh, who are responsible for responding to missing children reports and, uh, crucially, through the Criminology Research Council funding, we were able to speak to magistrates, registrars at the court and people involved in juvenile justice, both sort of youth workers and policy law reform people, lawyers as well, so legal aid, children's legal service, Aboriginal legal service, a number of organisations, also non-government agencies we've also spoken to, I've remembered a few now, so we also (laughs) had um, non-government agencies that were working around particular courts as well, so we spoke to their youth workers or social workers at a number of um, sites. Sure, and I guess from the findings in the research, it notes that Uh, a common response from these participants cited that going missing is an example of an offence committed by children in residential facilities. It talks about three themes that emerge from the analysis regarding children missing in care. Kath, what are these three themes? The fact of going missing itself can lead you to become criminalised. Is that because when you go missing, you're a very vulnerable Mm -hmm. young person. So That doesn't also, though, take into account the reason that you might have gone missing. So you might go missing because you've run away or absconded, depending on the terminology, and you'll see these different people being referred to as absconding all the time. But basically the response of the system, of the adults in the system, is to treat these kids as if they've committed an offence because they're not where they should be at a particular time. So they might have gone missing for a day, a week, a month. And there are different factors that we'll talk about a bit later about what that all means for the children and the the services involved. But that's the first start is that's the criminalisation. So say you've got a police officer who is looking for a child because they haven't been home for a couple of days. So they get a call from the non-governmental facts um, from the agency. They go and they look for the kid. They find the child. They might then say, look, come along with me. Come, Come home. The child may be escaping a dangerous situation or a place they don't feel happy in. They also may be afraid of the police because of things that have gone on earlier in mm. their lives or the police attitude to the child. And they may react, you know, push the police officer away or swear or react violently. And we saw a number of situations where the criminalisation then happened with the police response to those children. Right. So they would then arrest them for offensive language okay. or for assault or something like that. Mm. Other types of criminalisation is that the children may go missing because they're being lured away, they're being involved by other other young people or adults into sort of a criminalised environment, a lifestyle. So they may be getting recruited into committing offences or they may be committing offences because they've run away from home essentially and they're on the streets Mm. and they're hungry. So they might break into someone's house or they might shoplift more commonly. So that's criminalising again. The poor agency, interagency relationships we found at various stages, but they might be, for example, when the residential service provider, the care worker, doesn't call the police on the child, even though the child's missing and no one knows where they are and they might be in a dangerous situation, they don't ring the police. Or they do ring the police, the kid comes back and then they fail to tell the police. Right. So this led to a lot of frustration. The police were saying things like, it's always the same kids. Okay. I don't know what's going on in that home. Why don't the workers know what they're doing? So this led mm. to really difficult situations in how the adults responded to the processes and what was happening sure. even before you get to why the kids were actually going running, running away. And then we get to the last one, which is the 
I alluded to, the criminogenic residential environment, and that's because you can have a mixture of kids. So children who may have already been offenders mm. in living in the same place as children who have never come in contact with the justice system but whom are susceptible to being victimised by other children or by other adults in those children's lives. Sure. And or getting involved just because of the people they meet in, in the homes, getting involved in lifestyles that then lead them to become involved in crime. And again, also, that was the way that workers responded to kids as well. So we found instances of the police being used as a behaviour management tool, right. essentially so the, the carers didn't feel equipped to deal with challenging behaviour, which it was quite common that children who had these traumatic backgrounds, mm. who hadn't had stable family lives, reacted poorly in situations, didn't handle emotions well, and when they acted out, mm. um, the carers didn't know their response was to use the police, to call the police in the first instance, where perhaps in the family home, a, a parent might not call mm. the police for those sorts of incidents. So that sort of then could lead to distrust between a poor relationship between the care and the yeah. kids, which might then also be a reason for them leaving care or just, um, and I think we'll get into this a bit later, but, you know, not coming home on time, staying right. out late, not listening to what the carer says yeah. or what the house rules were. And then again, the police being called time and time again. And, mm. and that contributed to the frustration and the poor interagency relationships. So, so we've got these sort of three factors kind of, you know, intersecting, intersecting yeah. and working together to, to to escalate situations. So probably started out quite, you know, minor incidents. And, you know, a lot of researchers, not just our researchers, come across examples of very minor incidents that have been escalated up into serious charges mm. from, you know, kids, you know, ripping posters off walls in frustration and then being charged with property damage. Wow. And teenagers in the home, I'm sure there have been plenty of teenagers, parents out there probably have had teenagers who've had, a rough day and ripped up a poster or thrown something on the floor, mm. they're not getting arrested for that in the or family sworn home. At a carer. Yeah. yeah, or yeah. if you swear at your parents, okay, you might get into trouble, but your parents are unlikely to call the police on you for that. Wow. So, and yeah. is there, you know, is there a typical age demographic here that was, was there a pattern that you discovered in terms of age of the children? Well, Part of it is driven by the criminal justice mm. rules around the age of criminal responsibility. And so basically a child under 10 is okay. unable to be charged with a criminal offence. Right. So all of the children we saw in the court were aged over 10. Right. Luckily, um, I don't think we even saw a 10-year-old, but we did see 11-year-olds. Wow. And 12-year-olds. And 12-year-olds, definitely yeah. 11 and 12, which is a ridiculously young yes. age. But also the children in residential care homes, you're not allowed to be put in a residential care home unless you are over 12 years of age. Okay. Unless you are with a big sibling group, brothers and sisters mm. that are all meant to be staying together and foster family can't take you all. Or unless there is some particular reason that it would be better for you, the child, to be in a residential home rather than a, a regular family home. Sure. So, But they're very unusual. Usually yes. most of the children are slightly older, about 15, 16. And that's also the peak age of offending for young people under 18. It's 16, 17 is when wow. most kids mm. who offend do offend. Okay. So they all intersect those issues. Sure, yeah. yeah. But we did still see disturbing numbers of young 12-year-olds in particular. And I think what's important to note there is it wasn't just that they were 12. Mm. It was that they were 12 and they also um, might have uh, intellectual disability mm serious mental health concerns, mm. a whole host of other vulnerabilities that presented. And so it wasn't just, say, seeing an, a, a regular 12-year-old mm. 
on the stand is a 12-year-old who perhaps is not actually even able to operate at the capacity of a 12-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even just the age, 11 and 12, that is so young. The children are reacting. They're going missing um, because of an unsafe home environment or the uh, residential care home environment or unsatisfactory at least. Uh, Or they're going missing shortly after being placed in a new placement. They're with Mm -hmm. kids who haven't worked out the dynamics of yet. They they might be much older, placed with much older children. They might be the older one and are placed with, you know, little kids, younger younger 12-year-olds or so. And, you know, they don't want to be in a home with babies. Like, Mm. we don't know the reasons why the children went missing by talking to the children yet. That's research that still needs to be done. That has not been done by us. But by talking to the service providers Mm. and the professionals, watching the matters and looking at the files, missing, going missing was such a key part in every child's life who appeared before the court, who'd been in out-of-home care, there were missing episodes. So it's a really key thing to understand why children are going missing or running away. What is it? motivation why are they doing this because that might then help us understand ways to keep them safer but also to stop them being involved in the justice system and this sort of led us to one of the findings in in, in this research which was that typology that we came up to yes. try and sort of understand yeah. it's not as simple as saying kids go missing mm-hmm. because again we've talked a bit about the variety of reasons they go missing and what we saw was sort of a pattern emerging where you had kids who absconded so that might be kids who just stayed out late and a uh, variety of responses from carers to that, ranging from, oh, I know that kid, is he'll be back by eight, even though the house rules say six, you know, we won't worry yeah. about that, to kids who the carer went, it's 6.05, you're supposed to be back by six, I'm on the phone to the police. You mm. breach your bail conditions and all of a sudden it's uh, serious consequences within right. the court system. Mm. So there's a range of responses there, ranging from criminalisation, but I guess you would see the one, the carer that sort of understood the child as going, well, they'll be back by eight, so they'll be right, so I won't necessarily do anything about mm. it potentially good on the criminalisation mm. side of things, but had other unintended consequences, which yeah. is what we led to things like the, the other category, which was genuinely missing. We also had one which was, was self-placing. So kids mm. who went, I do not accept this placement. I want to go back to my mum or dad. Like that, that was the other thing is mm. kids are removed from their families. It doesn't mean that they don't love their families and don't want to be with them. Even if they're suffering abuse and neglect, mm. it's still their mum or dad or, you know, they want to go back. So a lot of kids run back to their home and they try to keep going back home and that's also where offending behavior happens so we saw kids who were pulled up for not paying for train tickets Mm -hmm. or feed on the train seat but they were on a train escaping from their care home Mm -hmm. to get to their mum and dad Uh, and then they got into contact with the transit police and so on and so forth it snowballed Mm -hmm. and we called those the the self places there were also um, particularly amongst the older teenagers say 15 year old girls who had older boyfriends and they went right. in place they went yeah. and lived with their boyfriends they didn't want to be in the care home and again that's a cause for concern because these children are under the care of the state but the state is the parent has parental responsibility for them but again age wise and vulnerability wise teenage girls with a you know his and this is just an example it doesn't it you know happens also with teenage boys as well but children who've had experiences of trauma in childhood and instability in family life looking for love you mm. know and predate, they can be predated upon so these older men you know they were going and staying with these older men and yeah. a lot of them were could be considered relationships that are not just inappropriate but also you know age difference wise actually illegal as well yeah. and abusive so a lot of the it's not not usual for them to run to a kind loving boyfriend right. and yes. family mm. they, run, they end up going missing or being involved often with predators pedophiles 
criminal gang involvement. So where they're running away to may not be any safer than where they're running away from. Mm. And yet they're kids, you know, they can't be expected yeah. to figure that out. So there's a quite a lot of inconsistency between the need not to criminalise the children, so not to get them involved in the justice system if they are reacting to not wanting to be where they're not wanted or they don't want to be, yeah. if they're running away from danger within that care home and if they're running to somewhere that they think is safer. Just and then, But then also understanding and being able to respond with safety and in a safe way that where they're running to may be equally or worse than where they were. So it's this whole combination of difficult yeah. issues. But what we found overwhelmingly was that those safety concerns were secondary. So to the police, to the residential care home, and ultimately to the magistrates, it wasn't the safety so much they were worried about for the kids. It was the f- involvement in crime. that they, Yeah, okay. You know, yeah. And, and that's a real concern to us. We were quite shocked, I guess. You're talking about carers when, they, when they're looking after these kids and they think, oh, he'll be right between six and eight. I know this is what he's doing. But what happens when something does go wrong in that time period? What happens to the carer after that? Well, that's an interesting question. I haven't really seen anyone charged or held accountable other than generally people just feeling bad about the fact something happened to a kid. But I think the more important point rather than the carer is what happens to the kids. And what we know, there's very, very limited research in Australia, but what we know is that the first national study that's been done into missing people by the Australian Federal Police and the National Missing Persons Unit within that division that put out late last year found that Children aged 13 to 17 are the biggest group to Mm. go missing of all the people who go missing in Australia. But within that group, the biggest group are children in out-of-home care. And and, and that's repeat missing episodes as well. So to bring it back into context, we're talking about a tiny, tiny group of kids. So in New South Wales at the moment, there's only about 800 children in residential care. Mm -hmm. So this tiny little group of 800 kids are making up a significant proportion of all the people who go missing in yeah. Australia and not just who go missing and come back and, you know, they're a little bit out for curfew, but those who go away and are lost or not found for some time mm. and who may later end up in you know, murder statistics or, you know, just yeah. the disappeared that we don't know what happened to. Yeah. So there's this real tension between keeping them out of the, the criminal justice system for things that a regular child with a regular mum and dad wouldn't get involved in sure and yet being aware enough and having the agencies particularly the police who are involved having them alert to the potential dangers that the children are exposed to when mm. they do go mm. missing yeah mm. okay now some of the responses i read from the welfare professionals noted residential facility protocols can you tell me a little bit about some of those responses and what some of the protocols focused on emma yeah, so just to, 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 as a point of distinction, uh, when we're talking about the word protocol, to, so there's no confusion, there is what's called the joint protocol mm-hmm. uh, to end the criminalisation of kids in care. In residential yeah, care. Yeah. In residential care. And that was, that's been a process that's been set up over a few years and we've also written a bit about that too. But that's actually an interagency sort of protocol to mm-hmm. try and address some of these issues and it's been in process for a while. It's been quite slow to get off the ground and... That's still, you know, 
in train. But and when we're talking about these, this is more just like the policies and procedures mm-hmm. in place within the residential care homes. And again, sort of alluding to some of the carers had they had house rules. Mm-hmm. So again, the group homes might be sort of four or five kids living mm-hmm. in a house-like environment it's supposed to sort of emulate a family home, yeah. but they still have the institutional <laughs> yeah. look. They still have, you know, the fire escape plan right. by the door. Yeah. They still have the house rules, you know. Food can be locked up in cupboards and you have to ask permission to right. a drink okay. of water yeah. or food. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in theory it's supposed to be like a home. I think we've seen lots of examples of it. I, I don't think kids feel particularly like it's a home there from from what we've seen and and read and and others have found but it might be so you know everyone has to be back by six Mm. you know you have you can't bring boyfriends girlfriends over between Mm. certain times or you know you can't have boys in your room or visitors have to be logged that kind of thing yeah a book so Um, when a a child goes missing the question first of all is at what stage does the worker who may be especially if it's like that crossover between day shift and night shift mm-hmm. obviously people aren't on 24 7 mm-hmm. so the day shift people have to tell the night shift people that so and so hasn't come back yet it's now 6 30 they're meant to be back by six okay how serious what do they know about the child how serious mm. is that are these the kind of ones they know that they always get back at seven are they going to take that risk or do they do follow the strict rules and that is to bring the police after mm-hmm. a certain time mm-hmm. or certain amount of times passed. So each home will dif- will differ and I think that actually makes it incredibly confusing for a child or young person. Absolutely. Because they, they move around a yeah. lot. Like they don't stay in the one place for a year. It's very unusual, especially in residential care. So you, know, you might have a child who doesn't get the rules. The rules are completely different to what happened at the last place. So whatever the rules are, at some stage the home, the kid's not back, the carers will ring the police. Mm -hmm. The police are required to log every call and to treat every incident of an official call as if it is a potential missing person. So not just a kid out late, an absconder or a staying put kid, Mm. but that this is potentially the first information the police receive for what could be a long-term missing person investigation. Right. So they react in that way. So they have to log details and et cetera, et cetera. What the police made very clear to us was that they are really determined. It's very important for them to be told when the child comes back. Mm -hmm. So often the carers may actually ring and then not tell the police who've been out looking all night um, that the child's come back at three o'clock in the morning. So police were getting really annoyed when that happens. Of course. But it also meant that when the police did come into contact with that child, they still had them down as a missing person. Mm, Right. Right. And so, again, it meant they interacted with that child mm-hmm. and any interaction puts the child at risk of criminalisation. Okay, okay. So there's those sorts of things, these strict rules. So the care home at a certain point is meant to ring police and notify a child is missing. The police have certain things they're then meant to do. Mm-hmm. Well, first, obviously, is just go out and see if they are at the places that they're meant to be at. Sure. Um, the carer, meanwhile, is going to obviously be still t- calling or texting the child. They've usually got mobiles to try and find out where they are. Then you start, of course, getting into the more serious situation. It's been a day. You know, first 24 hours in a, in a missing person investigation, they're crucial. It could happen to somebody in that time. Mm. So you've got the police sort of torn between, this is, you know, little Johnny. It's the 37th time he's gone missing in the last year. The police are well sick of him. Yeah. They still have to take that as seriously as if this is the first time a ch- the child's gone missing. They don't, yeah. um, and there are differences. But the police were saying that they rapidly work out who are the kids that are doing this all the time. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, what we found was that they tend to regard those children as troublemakers and okay. as difficult. 
right. rather than they are equally at risk, perhaps more, more so, so. Sure. Um, because where are they going with yeah. such regularity that they're constantly missing for a day or a mm. night? What and are they it, doing? And again, that could be, you know, the 15-year-old girl meeting up with the older yeah. boyfriend. Yeah. And what we found um, was a lack of awareness of international um, and even national situations where children who've gone missing have been found to have been recruited into criminal mm. gangs, criminal activities, the drug lines in the UK where they are used to courier drugs from one part of the country wow. to the other. Um, more importantly, on one hand, is the child sexual exploitation. So organised gangs where children are recruited into prostitution yeah. or preyed upon thinking they're, you know, first having sex with their nice boyfriend, then it's their nice boyfriend's friend, then it's their nice boyfriend's friend's friend, and suddenly he's not a nice boyfriend but he's abusing them and they're on drugs and being sold off for yeah. drugs or money or whatever and pimped out. That is involved thousands of children in the UK, for example. That are known in, about. But that, that are known about, exactly, over over a decade. Scandal after scandal, mm. inquiry after inquiry, from not just jurisdictions like the UK and Canada, but also Queensland, South Australia, Victoria, where these gangs or, or this predation and patterns are being noticed. Mm. So every missing child report potentially, luckily not, that commonly, but potentially is a really red alert for both intelligence and for the opportunity to um, assist a child who may be subject to these things that they just don't quite understand what they're getting into. Thanks for listening and we look forward to sharing all of our CSU stories with you. For more information on CSU stories, go to news.csu.edu.au.